0: Hey, before you sit down, why don't you take a minute and greet one another tonight. Say, love it, love it, love it. Hey, just a reminder um, to be praying over Sunday. Uh, Sunday's not only communion, but Sunday's message is going to be about relationships. And as I shared on Sunday, I think it would be a great opportunity to maybe invite somebody even to come with you. Maybe they're struggling in relationships right now. And uh, Sunday would be a a great message for them to be encouraged by and and to hear. Tonight, Acts chapter 9, we're primarily going to look at the conversion or salvation of Saul. But before we get into that, just a couple of general points about this chapter. First of all, this chapter is all about lives that can only be explainable by God. That's what I want us to grasp tonight. That what we are seeing is evidence of lives that can only be explained by God. And the reason I want to start there is because I want that to linger throughout the night and and hopefully even encourage and challenge us Because that's exactly what God wants to do in our lives. He wants to so transform us, reproduce himself in us, that the life we are living can only be explainable by God. That we're not living, in a sense, to our own capacity. And we're going to talk a lot about this on Sunday. But we're able to live beyond our capacity to only a degree that others would just say, how how are they able to do that? You see. And that's what we're going to see tonight. Many different examples of people who had already encountered God or, as we're going to talk about tonight, Saul, who is going to encounter God and whose life is going to forever be changed. I want to mention this to start with because I don't want to end necessarily with this. I want to end with Saul tonight. But I want to start at the very end of the chapter in verses 32 through the rest of the chapter. It goes from the conversion of Saul then back to some things that Peter is doing. And Peter is healing a man in verses 32 through 35 and then in verse 36, through the rest of the chapter, he actually raises a gal from the dead. And, and the reason I wanted to just start there tonight is because Peter, obviously, at this point, is, is living a life that can only be explained by God. First of all, who can raise the dead except God? Who can heal except God? And Peter even points this out. When he heals this man, Aeneas, notice in verse 34, Peter says to this man, Jesus the Christ is the one who is healing you. And later on in verse 35, it says people, many of them, were turning to the Lord. Notice they weren't turning to Peter. They weren't worshiping Peter. They weren't following Peter. They were turning to the Lord because it was the Lord that was doing it through Peter. Yes, it was his life, but it was a life that was only explainable in terms of God. Peter was just the vessel. Peter was just the instrument of God in God's hands that he was using. And and what a change. What a transformation from the Peter that we see in the Gospels. The one who would argue with Jesus. The one who would be very contentious. The one who would fail. The one who would deny. And yet now we see what a change has taken place. God has changed Peter's heart. And God changes our hearts. And God changes other people's hearts. And so we're going to see a dramatic change in a man named Saul, beginning in verse 1 of Acts chapter 9. Luke writes, Meanwhile... Saul, still breathing out threats to murder the Lord's disciples, went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, either men or women, he could bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he was going along, approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, I want to stop there. In the first verse... Luke is reminding us that basically with every breath that Saul was breathing, he was consumed with persecuting the church, with putting Christians in jail, with murdering Christians. He literally was totally consumed by that. And he thought, he thought, he thought that he was doing the will of God. I mean, he was, he was as confident and convinced That he was in with God and was doing exactly what God wanted him to do. And man, he was all in. Every breath that he breathed was in a sense moving him towards his goal of wiping out Christianity. Of of wiping out the name of Jesus Christ from off the face of the earth. From totally destroying the church. So he's on his way to Damascus after getting permission from the high priest to start looking through the synagogues there. And it very interestingly says in verse 2 that if he found any who belonged to the way, this is a unique way of describing the church, of describing Christians. It's only found here in the book of Acts. And it reminds us that Our faith, being a Christian, is a lifestyle. That's what this word means. It's a course of conduct. It's it's not following a set of rules and regulations, but it's a life. It's a lifestyle. And it goes along even with Jesus when He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And so, it's describing those who obviously are following Christ as following His way, if you will. And we see that throughout the book of Acts, that people were describing these early Christians as those who belonged to the way. It says, as he was going, this light from heaven flashed around him. Though he thought he was living in light, he was actually living in darkness. And this is obviously a pretty dramatic conversion here tonight. This is not the way, obviously, God saves most people. He certainly didn't save me like this, and he probably didn't save you like this. But yet, there are still some commonalities to all salvation, and that is God has to bring light into our life, because all of us without Christ are living in darkness. But I do want to note you to notice some things here tonight. First of all, after the light flashed around him, he fell to the ground. This is a humbling thing. The words literally mean to be overcome. And they literally mean to descend from a higher place to a lower place. In other words, God is bringing Saul down to the ground. God is humbling Saul. God is reducing Saul. In a sense, we would say Saul, as he was on his way to Damascus, was a man filled with pride and He was on his high horse, if you will. And yet we see how quickly, when God wants to, that God can take a man or a woman from here down to here real quickly. Now here's what I want to share with you tonight. But here's what we see. Anytime God humbles us, anytime God takes us from where we are To the ground, it's always to elevate us back up. It's always to bring us back up higher, if you will, than we were before. God's intent never is to break a man or a woman. To bring us down and keep us there. His goal, his desire is always, if I humble you, if I break you, If I bring you down, it's always to lift you back up higher than what you were when I found you. And Saul is a great example of that. Yes, God brought him to his knees. Yes, God brought him to the ground. But God was going to lift this man up and use him in unbelievable ways. Be encouraged by that. God may be in the process of breaking you, humbling you. I certainly go through that a lot in my life. And though I can be in a place of discouragement and despair, God always reminds you, I've brought you to this point so I can fill you back up and use you in an even greater way. And we need to realize that as Christians. We need to be encouraged about that even in regards to other people that we may be praying for and thinking about and concerned about. That, you know, if God brings them down, it's only to raise them back up. Also, notice this. If anybody in history would have deserved a lightning bolt coming out of heaven and frying them on the spot for what they had done, it would have been Saul. I mean, think about it. Think about what Saul was involved in. And yet notice, no lightning bolt of judgment came out of heaven to fry Saul on the spot there as he was entering Damascus to basically destroy more lives. No. He hears a voice. And the voice he hears is Jesus. And notice what Jesus says. Saul. Saul. He first calls him by name, and he calls him his name twice. And any time that Jesus used a name of a place or a person twice, it was emphasizing, in a sense, his love and and his affection. Remember, even when he was standing outside of Jerusalem, And he so wanted the people of Jerusalem to follow him rather than reject him. And and he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, twice. Here, he's confronting this man who has done nothing but murder Christians and destroy and demoralize his people. And yet, what is his first response to this man? Saul. Saul. In a sense, it's like, what are you doing? And then he says, why are you persecuting me? He again identifies Jesus with his people. He's, He's reminding this man, Saul, that what you have been doing to them has affected me. We are one in the same. They are part of my body. And if you've harmed them, you've harmed me, Jesus said. So, Saul says, who are you, Lord? And I think that term is meaning that he understands this is God who's ever speaking to him. But he doesn't know the specific identity of this God. Now, think about that. Think about the irony of that. Here's a man who's pretty convinced and consumed that he's doing the will of God, and yet when God finally speaks to him, he's not sure of his identity. And so Jesus says, I am Jesus. Saul would know who that was. I mean, you and I can only imagine what was going through Saul's mind and heart at that moment. Jesus? The one that I said was dead? The one that I said was a blasphemer? The one that I have been going around saying was a charlatan and a pretender and, and all of the followers of yours I've been murdering and all of that? You're the one I'm talking to? And Jesus says this, stand up, don't stay on the ground, stand up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. Now, the men who were traveling with him stood there speechless because they heard a voice, but they saw no one. So Saul got up from the ground. I, I don't know about you, but I underlined that and then contrasted that with verse four. He fell to the ground. Yes, he fell to the ground, but it was only to get back up off the ground and be greater than he was when he fell to the ground. Remember that principle. If God takes us to the ground, if he takes us to our knees, it is only to raise us back up again to greater heights. That's what he did with Saul. And then the Bible says, as Saul got up from the ground, although his eyes were open, he could not see anything. So leading him by the hand, his companions brought him into Damascus. And for three days he could not see, and neither did he eat nor drink anything. And you can imagine, this entrance into this place, Damascus, was far different than Saul had imagined it was going to be. And here's this proud, strong man who's going to go into Damascus and rattle some Christians' cages. And now, he has to be led in. He can't even get there on his own. And again, it reminds us how quickly things can change in our lives. And how quickly God can overwhelm us and begin to change our hearts. Now, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. We don't know anything about this guy, Ananias, other than this in Acts. He wasn't one of the twelve. He wasn't necessarily any great leader in the church, but he was somebody that God was going to greatly use. And Saul was never going to forget this guy. Because one of the things we learn here is that though Saul became this great apostle Paul, he didn't get there on his own. As we talked about Sunday. No Christian is a self-contained unit. No Christian can get to where God created them to be and express and experience the will of God for their lives on their own. We need each other. We belong to each other. And I hope this will greatly encourage you. God knows exactly who Ananias is. He's had his eye on Ananias and Ananias' walk with him, probably for a long time. And when God wanted to tap a very important strategic person that was going to be part of his plan, he taps Ananias. It might have been totally unknown to a lot of people in the church, but God knew him. And God was going to use him strategically and I, again. Please be encouraged by that. There, there is no one who's obscure or unknown in God's eyes and in God's plan. If God sees that He can use us, He will use us. He will tap us. We just have to be doing what we know God wants us to do and put ourselves in a place where when God sees an opportunity, He'll come and He'll tap us to do it. And that was Ananias. Ananias. Now, the other thing here, before we get into this, is this. God always works on both ends when God's involved with something. Always, always, always. That should be a comfort to us. In other words, God didn't expect Ananias to somehow be, to have Paul thrust on him, and, and for Paul just to all of a sudden show up and say, you know, you go to this guy's house, and you force yourself on him, and you tell, No. God was going to work on Ananias' heart. And God was working on Paul's heart because God wanted them to come together. And God wasn't just going to work on one or the other. He was going to work on both. And we need to remember that. When God is in something and God wants to bring people together, God will work on both ends. You can count on it. It may take one individual a little bit longer to come around than another, but God will always be working on both ends. And God was doing that here. So the Lord said to Ananias in a vision, Ananias, he replied, Here am I, Lord. By the way, he's addressing him as Lord, the one to whom I belong. He decides. That's what the word Lord means. So it was like, here I am, Lord. It's not my life. I, I placed myself at your disposal, Sunday's message. Here I am, Lord. What do you want? What can I do for you? And the Lord told him, I want you to get up and go to the street called Straight. At Judas's house, I want you to look for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And this isn't the first time that Saul had ever prayed, but this is the first time he really prayed. Up to this point, Saul would have just, like good Jews, sort of recited formal prayers. This time, Saul was praying. He was grabbing a hold of God and he was praying like never before. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias, verse 12, come in and place his hands on him so that he may see again. Now notice, Ananias is just a normal human being. He replies, Lord, I've heard from many people about this man. How much harm. The word means destruction. This guy has caused a lot of destruction to all of your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to come and imprison all who call on your name. And so notice something here. Ananias is objecting. Can I tell you something? Even just from this passage alone, although it's in plenty other places of the Bible, God is okay when he comes to us and asks us to do something that we have an initial objection. He he doesn't chastise Ananias because obviously, as a normal human being, we should all feel that way. You're asking me to connect with Saul? He's the one going around killing everybody. Lord, I I have to say, that's a little bothersome. I don't want to be his next victim. So God's okay with objections. Until then, God comes back to Ananias and reassures him. Notice the Lord's response. The Lord said to him, go. Go. Because this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the people of Israel. God's okay when he comes to us and asks us something that may be a little crazy. Ananias, I want you to connect with this man who's but done nothing but do harm and destruction. I object, God. I, that, that just doesn't... That just doesn't sit. That doesn't sound right. It's going to be okay, Ananias. He's mine. You go. Then at that point, if Ananias would have still objected, then I think God has a problem. God never has a problem with objection. But when God comes back and basically is reassuring us, it's okay. His heart has changed. go. And again, notice, God doesn't even place that pressure on Paul to again push himself on Ananias. He wants Ananias to be open and inviting to Paul. Again, working on both ends here. The other thing I want you to notice is this. When God says to Ananias, he's my chosen instrument, it's God's choice, and he says, look, I, I made this choice that he's going to be my main missionary to Gentiles. We don't know why God makes some of the choices he does, and he doesn't always explain himself, but what he does tell us is, I got this, it was my choice, I'm God, I know what I'm doing, just trust me. Because in our human minds, here again would be a situation. I know I would be this way if I'm just sitting down trying to comprehend God's mind. I'd say, God, here's what doesn't make sense to me. If anybody would have been a great choice to be a missionary to the Jews, it would have been Saul. Remember Saul's pedigree and background? He was like as Jewish as Jewish could get. He was as steeped in the Old Testament scriptures as you could get. If anybody... For instance, let me try to... It would be like somebody being saved, say, out of Mormonism today, and God having a whole different plan for their life than reaching other Mormons. And you'd go... I mean, at least I'd be like, Man, doesn't it make sense? Isn't it logical, God, that here's a person who knows what it's like and has been saved out of that? Wouldn't that be the logical choice for you then to use them to reach them? And I'm sure there's times where God would say, yeah, that is, that is my choice. But here God is saying, no, he's my choice to go reach Gentiles. Don't understand it. But sometimes God mixes, makes choices that we don't understand. But then I want you to see this. That choice isn't necessarily a glamorous thing, is it? Because notice what it says in verse 16. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Wow. By the way, the word suffer here is not the normal word for like physical suffering. It literally means to be affected. To feel is what the word means. In other words, God is saying this man, like really any of my servants down through history, is going to have to be willing to be affected and to feel things. Because you and I can't bear the name of Christ and carry the name of Christ and live for Christ and put ourselves out there even like Christ did and truly impact other people's lives and not be affected and not feel in some way. If we're going to wall ourselves off and try to protect ourselves, we're going to limit how much God can use us in the lives of others. We're going to talk more about that on Sunday. That's why Saul was so dynamic for Christ. Because he was willing to feel and be affected by others. Even when it hurt. Paul was willing to put himself out there for the name of Jesus Christ. So Ananias departed, verse 17, entered the house, placed his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul. We can read that and not really feel how important that would have been to Saul. And it reminds us that sometimes the encouragement that we get from others, sometimes the encouragement that we give to others isn't some lengthy, long dissertation. Sometimes it only has to be a couple words. And in this instance, from where Saul had been to now to have anybody, any Christian be willing to call him a brother after what he has done would have been huge. Because you, you and I can only imagine what was going through his mind. As he was probably for a few days not eating or drinking, thinking to himself, if I've really done what I'm starting to understand the magnitude of what I've done, there is no Christian who will ever want to associate with me. There is no Christian who will ever want to talk to me. There is no Christian that will, I will literally have to walk through life all by myself alone. And for Ananias to be this obedient servant and go up to this man and say, you're my brother, was huge. Huge. For Saul. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. There again, notice, if God empties us, if God brings us to our knees, if God brings us to the ground, if God humbles us, it is only because He wants to fill us up with Himself. And that's exactly what happened to Saul. Saul, in a sense, in this experience, was emptied of self. His heart was changed so that God could fill him with his spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, his strength returned. For several days he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, This man is the Son of God. And notice this, verse 21, A life only explainable by God. All who heard him were amazed and were saying, Is this not the man who in Jerusalem was ravaging those who call on his name? And who had come here to bring them as prisoners to the chief priests? The conversion of Saul is one of the greatest evidences that Jesus was alive and active of anything that's ever happened in history. Even today, I can even, back a few years ago, when I used to sometimes debate, I can remember using Saul as an example that no one can explain away. How do you explain away the conversion of Saul? How can you logically explain that here's a man who did nothing but it with his life except put to death Christians and try to stamp out everything about the Christian faith in Jesus Christ? How do you explain this 180 degree turnaround where now he goes from this to this? The only explanation is Jesus Christ is not dead. Jesus Christ changes lives. Jesus Christ is the answer to this that we see here. And God is still in the business of changing lives and changing hearts. Because He wants us to again show others Jesus is alive. And I'm an example of that because my life has been changed or my heart has been changed. And the only explanation for it is God. I didn't do it. Only God could do that. And then it says, Saul became more and more capable. These words in verse 22 are very important. It means to continually increase in strength. That's very important. As we become a Christian... We need to start out on that path of spiritual growth and continually increase in our spiritual strength and capacity. And he was causing consternation among many Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. The word proving here means to bring others to the same conclusion that you had. Now notice this. We're almost done. Five more minutes. After some days had passed, the Jews plotted together to kill him. Think about it. How much has been reversed? Saul leaves this life of privilege for a higher calling. The higher calling is to bear the name of Jesus Christ and carry it everywhere he goes. He's going to suffer for it. But it's a much higher calling than the life of privilege that he had before he met Christ. And the people that were once his friends, his cohorts, his companions, his associates, now are trying to murder him. But Saul learned of their plot against him, and they were also watching the city gates and night and day so they could kill him. But his disciples took him at night, led him down through an opening in the wall by lowering him in a basket. Saul didn't come into the city of Damascus like he thought, and he didn't leave the city of Damascus like he thought. Pretty humbling. Lowering down in that little basket, hiding him so that he can get away with his life. But I want you to notice something. In verse 25, very powerful, that we might miss if we don't stop for just a second. Those disciples that took him by night and let him down through that basket and helped him escape. Some of those people were family members of people that Saul had murdered. Think about that. Think about that. The people that were now helping Saul had been personally affected by what Saul did, and yet God had changed their hearts. And they were now willing to help this man. When he arrived in Jerusalem... He attempted to associate with the disciples. By the way, this word associate is a very powerful word. It means to be glued together or fastened firmly to. It again reminds us of the plan that God has for His people. He doesn't want anyone to be out there on their own. Even the great Saul desired and wanted to be glued together with other disciples. He never wanted to live life on his own. He wanted to be In companionship with other believers. But notice, again, normal. It says they were all afraid of him. They were hesitant. I don't want to be around this guy. In fact, a lot of them thought this is all a ruse, that that this is just this is a a big plan that he's going to infiltrate the church like a secret spy, pretending that he's really converted. And then once he gets in there, then he's going to turn everything upside down. And then we're going to find out that this was all just a lie. Because notice, they did not believe that he was a disciple. But here again, Ananias, strategic person, and now Barnabas, the guy we met earlier, that, that person who has that gift of encouragement and exhortation. Notice what it says. He took Saul and brought him to the apostles. Literally the word means he took him by the hand and he led them. And he was that go-between, that very important transitional person to get Saul more in to the body of Christ and be accepted. I thought to myself, these two men that we see here tonight, Ananias and Barnabas literally could be a full-time ministry even in a church like ours. Because, you know, obviously we're, we're supposed to be out there being witnesses to people that don't know Christ. But another very strategic position in ministry in any local church or in any body is when new people come to a church like this, most of the time they don't know very many people. They don't know where this is or that is, and and they're just throwing themselves in here saying, you know, I think this is where God's leading me to be, but I'm sort of, you know, a stranger. And really to have somebody in that church come along and sort of take them by the hand and say, hey, I'm going to introduce you. To some people. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ease this transition because I remember what it was like when I walked into a new church and didn't know very many people. That's exactly what we see Ananias and Barnabas doing. They're reaching out and they're providing a very important ministry of transition from people who are coming into to this new family and trying to get them a little bit more comfortable with their surroundings. So notice as we move on, Barnabas took Saul, brought him to the apostles and related to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. So he was staying with them, associating openly with them in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. He was speaking and debating with the Greek-speaking Jews, but they were trying to kill him. And when the brothers found out about this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. And then the Bible says, the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria experienced peace, thus was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, and the church increased in numbers. Notice as we close tonight this very important thing that's happening here in verse 31. God will allow for a specific purpose, a season or time of his people experiencing unrest and tension. As long as there's a purpose. But God never wants his people, either individually or corporately, to continue for a long period in a state of tension and unrest. And that's why Saul had to leave. He was such a lightning rod at that moment that in order for the church to move ahead, he needed to leave. He, he was okay for him to be there for a while. He needed to be. For a couple reasons. But he needed to go, too. At this time. And then the Bible says, four things happened. The church began to experience peace again. Tranquility, because... Again, a lot of turmoil where Saul was at that moment. It also says that the church was strengthened. This word means they were growing spiritually, which is obviously the sign of spiritual health. Then it says they were living in the fear of the Lord. They were living in respect and reverence for God. And then it says in the encouragement, literally the word means refreshment of the Holy Spirit. And notice what happened they increased it numerically. In other words, when a group of Christians are at peace with one another, are growing spiritually, are living out of respect and reverence for God, and what was the last? Oh, the refreshment of the Holy Spirit? That group of Christians will be attractive. Because... There's people that don't even really know what they're looking for in this life. But they can sort of sense that there's something different about that individual or that group of people. And they can't explain it at this moment, maybe. Maybe they're not even a Christian. But hopefully what they will find if they move a little bit closer to God and to us, for instance is that, wow, those people can only be explained by God. Because the way they relate to each other and the way they love each other and stuff, that that can't be just human. There's got to be something more behind it than that. And that's what we see here in Acts chapter 9. What we are seeing is evidence of people's lives that can only be explained by God. And God wants our lives to be like that as well. Let's pray. God, thank you for this great chapter. Really a turning point in the whole history of the church, the conversion of Saul. Probably the greatest missionary to the Gentiles that ever lived and certainly a man who wrote the majority of the New Testament scriptures to us. And yet, Lord, here was a man that even forever, while on earth, never got over your grace. In fact, he even had a hard time, in a sense, forgiving himself for what he did. Because he said over and over again, I'm unworthy to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. And yet, Lord, we see here a man that when he was allowing you to work in his life and change his heart, what could happen? Lord, I pray for all of us tonight that we would be encouraged by this. Not only for ourselves, but for others. To know that God can change hearts. And God, I pray tonight that, Lord, we even would have, we have them here at the Oasis, but Lord, maybe we would even have some more Ananiases and, and Barnabases. People that would be sensitive when new people come or try to join our church family. Or maybe they just come in to check us out. But they really don't know where to go and don't know very many people. And they're just looking for a friendly face. A friendly smile. Someone who's willing to come up and introduce themselves and maybe introduce them to some other people. Just to sort of initially break down those, those walls. God, how huge that is. And we've also been reminded tonight, Lord, it's not how much we say sometimes. Sometimes maybe it's not that we say anything at all. And so God, continue to use this little church just to bring glory and honor to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't forget, guys, Sunday, communion. And like I said... Great Sunday to invite somebody to come with you. God bless you. We'll see you Sunday.